Hi, my name is Jan Beard, and I'm here to uh, share about diverse unity. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact title of this session. People, and it's a long, <laughs> diversely uni unified in a disunifying culture. So, okay, thank you. So that's the actual title, if we got that. Um, but I would like to open with prayer. So God, thank you so much for your presence here. Thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we serve you, the risen King. Thank you, Lord, for being just interested in what we're doing today and leading us and guiding us in this. And God, I pray that your name would be lifted high. Would you open our hearts to hear from you and to hear from each other? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I am here to, um, like I said, talk about diverse unity. It's a phrase that we use a lot around our church. Um, I'm going to share a little bit of our story, and then we're going to dive into some theology to say why we do what we do, and then I'll have some practicals and some um, steps that we use that helped us get into diverse unity in our body. I had a PowerPoint. I thought we had the right cord. We do not have the right cord, and so it is not uh, working. It, it's, it's fine. You guys can track with me audibly, but I will be using my notes, and then the PowerPoint has my scriptures on it, so instead of them being up here, I'm going to read them off the laptop. Um, so anyway, Chris, my husband Chris is here. Some of you may know him. He's one of the presbyters in Ohio. But we have been um, serving at People's Church for almost 27 years in Cincinnati, Ohio. We started in 1992 as young kids uh, coming off of a one-year missions assignment after college. And we asked Pastor Clyde Anita Miller, could we come and learn from you for three or four years. We just want to be here a couple years before we do full-time missions. They're amazing people. I know many of you will know who they are. Um, Chris's family has known them through the decades, and so we just felt like they would be a great couple to learn under before we felt our calling was to take the light of Jesus to the nations. And so before we, you know, launched into going to an unreached people group, we thought, let's, let's serve under someone. So they graciously said, sure, come on board, serve a few years, and then we'll launch you. It's a very missional church, so they're used to launching their staff into missions. So we came, and um, we, we loved it. We were thriving. We learned a, a lot. And around the time that we started thinking about God's moving us, there's something new that's stirring in us. We think it's probably time to, to go into that next season of worshiping God through missions and leading overseas. And Chris took Pastor Miller to lunch, and Pastor Miller said, yeah, God is doing something. And I think God's saying, I'm supposed to retire in the next five years and transition the church over to you guys to lead the church, which was then called First Christian Assembly of God. And I just, I'll never forget when Chris came home that evening and shared, you know, this was the big day he was going to tell pastor, like, we're, we're ready to start transitioning out. And then Chris comes home with this whole new plan. And I was, we were like, that's not the call. God said we're going to take the light to the nations. That was something God specifically told me in, at a camp, big prairie camp, if any of you go back that far. Um, but that was the first time God, I started really communing with God and understanding a calling and I was being discipled, and that's, I was 15 years old. God said, take the light of Jesus to the nation. So I was for sure that that was missions. That's all I understood at that time. So we wrestled for about six months in prayer about what Pastor Miller proposed. 
and we finally settled that that really was what God was saying. At this same time, this was 1995, God started stirring a new vision and passion in our hearts for racial reconciliation. And this was like out of the blue for this church that we were in. It was a 98% Caucasian commuter, suburban attended church that was in the heart of the city. And um, so we started having this passion to forge relationships in our city across denominations and across race. We um, just had a passion for it. We weren't sure how to do it. Chris started meeting. He got on the schedule of lead pastors of all black churches, of the Vineyard Church, of Baptist Church, and he just started friendships with them. And then we started friendships as couples. We'd go to meals together. We would share pulpit ministries together, or you know, sharing, switching pulpit ministry, and um, just sharing life together and building real friendships. So we started, you know, we're in this five-year transition to become lead pastor, so we start sharing this new vision with Pastor Miller. And Pastor Miller and Anita were 100% supportive. They're like, oh, that's awesome, let's do it. We're a 100-year-old church, and we're going to, like, take it in a whole new direction. And Pastor Miller had been there 32 years as lead pastor. And this is just, we honor them. Every time I speak, I cannot not honor them because... They just breathe life into the new vision. And they're like, yes, that's God. Do it, do it, do it. And they are 80-something um, years old now, and they're still on our team as pastors emeritus. And they're amazing. But they were our biggest supporters and encouragers during this time. They also um, allowed us to share the vision with the board. before. This was before we became lead pastors. Um, and the board was not quite as supportive. We had maybe half that were as supportive. And then a few that were like, hmm, I don't know, this is really different. And then a couple that just were like, yeah, this isn't where we're supposed to go and we're out of here. So that happens too, I know. I'm speaking to the choir that all of you understand that. But with the support of the board and Pastor Miller, we, were, um, we began leading the church in 2001 with this new vision. And the vision was... it it became solidified a couple years later, but it was to become a racially reconciling, generationally rich, life-giving church thriving in the city. We felt like that was where God was leading us and wanting us to go. Still at this time, we're still almost an all-white church. Three months after we became pastors, we had race riots in Cincinnati. In April of 2001, Timothy Thomas was shot and killed, an unarmed black man, and our city was in riots. And we're sitting there wanting to become a racially reconciling church and wondering, what are we supposed to do? What, what is our role? The first thing we knew we needed to do was have diversity in our leadership. We were all white pastors, and so we felt like we didn't have a voice in the city when this was happening. So we start praying fervently for a pastor. We need a pastor of diversity, a pastor of color. Chris had a good friend that was a pastor down the street of an AME Zion all-black church. They didn't have a baptismal pool, so they would use um, our baptismal pool to baptize people like every quarter or every month or so. And he was baptizing all kinds of people. We were like, this guy is such an evangelist. Um, and one week, the pastors on the team told Chris, they were like, we, just, we need to find someone on our team. We need someone in our leadership to help us make this transition. That next day, Pastor Ezra calls Chris and says, hey, are you ready for your first pastor of color? 
and Chris was like, you got to be kidding me. You're joking with me. Ezra was a real jokester. He's really awesome. Um, and he's like, no, man. He's like, I need a one-year break from lead pastoring, and I want to be on your team. I mean, we were just like in shock and tears and everything. That Sunday, Ezra came and preached. The congregation was on fire that week because, okay, we're having race riots and we have an African-American in our pulpit, seven-button suit. He preached the fire like he would down the street at his own church. And people were leaving saying, we need him. We need him here if we're going to do this, you know. And so sure enough, we had to have the board meeting outside the city limits. It was on curfew for this time. And so we had the board meeting in our home that week to vote in Pastor Ezra to be on our team. So he was our first real um, catalyst in moving us forward into the next stage. So um, there were many ups and downs through the years. Here we are in 2019. God gave us a lot of wisdom. Those were the ups. We made a lot of mistakes. Those were the downs. And then there was everything in between. Um, as I alluded to earlier, people left. New people came. Um, God was faithful in it all. He was always, always faithful financially, um, just encouragement-wise with the people and friendships. It was, it was a really amazing time. We are still learning how to um, be church like heaven on earth. That's a phrase we use in our setting too. Uh, we model that after Revelation 7-9, every nation, tribe, people, language, worshiping at the throne of Jesus. So that's just a quick, uh, real, like a 40,000-foot overview of our story. And so I'd like to jump into some of the theology of why we're doing diverse unity, why we do Church Like Heaven on Earth. Um, the reason theology is so important, there are two reasons. First, because you need to stay anchored into what God's thinking is. We are not doing a cultural trend that's happening in our nation. It's not a cultural phenomenon that we're just trying to keep up with what's happening around us. This is God's heart and His will. And then also, uh, we stay theologically grounded, biblically grounded, because the storms will come. Satan will hate this, because whenever God has a plan, Satan's mad, right? So whatever we're pushing back darkness and moving with the kingdom, moving the kingdom forth in the earth, Satan is going to fight it. So we need to be equipped. The best way to be equipped is the word of God. He gives you the plan. He tells you what to do. He, he shows you how, to hap how it happens. So I want to start um, with John 17. And this is what's supposed to be up on the board so you can read it, but if you want to grab it later or look it up on your device. John 17, 20 through 23, I'm just going to read it first. It says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. So this is the prayer Jesus is praying. It's the Last Supper right before he's going to the cross. And this last prayer, he's praying it over his disciples, but not just for the disciples. He says, for those who will come after. So that's all of us, right? We believe in the message after. And he's praying that they'll be united, just like Jesus and the Father are united and they're one. He's praying for that unity because the whole purpose of the unity 
is the Great Commission, so that the world will believe. Unity and the Great Commission are just tied tightly right there in this scripture verse. I love that. Um, the next verse is Revelation 7-9, which I spoke of earlier. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Here, John, the same John that wrote John the Gospel, and we just read John 17, wrote Revelation, and it, he is seeing different people, various cultures. He is hearing different languages. Um, a word that we don't use in our context, which I've seen a few places, and so sometimes it may be appropriate, but the word assimilation is not a word we use in our context of diverse unity. We are not all trying to bring our cultures and bring, assimilate them into one culture. We are wanting to bring all the cultures and all the beautiful gifts and um, talents and resources that different cultures and races and backgrounds bring and integrate them into one body so that we can all uh, glean from each other's gifts. Like that's individually too, but then also all the cultures. So this is, um, what we read in Revelation 7. Then in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10, of course we're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we just saw a picture in Revelation of heaven. We're at the throne. There are all the languages, all the nations. It's the future party, I was calling it. It's the future party. It's not just a future party. It's a party now. We are supposed to be worshiping all the languages, all the people gathered together at the throne, worshiping Jesus now, on earth as it is in heaven. Next is Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace, and in one body reconcile both groups to God through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. So here um, it's referring to the two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks. These were um, two groups that hated each other. They were opposed to each other in society. They did not want to have anything to do with each other. And yet this is a church, a real church in Ephesus, Paul's talking about. These two groups come together and they're united. And in the miracle is because of Jesus. Otherwise, why would they be together? So when Jesus reconciles and brings people together, the world is going to see that something different is happening here. What is that? What's the source of that? Of course, it's Jesus. We're now united. This is how um, we can think of the different groups in our communities, in our counties, in our cities. Who are those groups that are really opposed to each other? Is it the rich and the poor that are on opposite ends? Is it the, um, the black and the white? Is it the immigrants and the nationals? What, what are those groups that we can pray into that, God, would you unite them? Would you make them one new humanity as you did at the church in Ephesus? Continuing in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 says, in reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of God, mystery of Christ, sorry, 
which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So when these two groups came together, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they're united into one body, Paul is saying this is the mystery of Christ, that two groups that hate each other, that are opposed to each other, can be united and become one new humanity, one body. That is the mystery revealed. The other thing that happens in this um, this coming together, the unifying of the body, is found in Ephesians 3, verse 10. It says, His intent was that now through the church, so through this church in Ephesus, the diversely united church, the groups that came together that hated each other, through this church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the heavenlies, to the rulers, authorities in the heavenly realms. So when this group comes together, what a huge benefit to the church that happens is the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. And it's not revealed just in, your, in the group, in the people, in the body. It's revealed in the heavenly realms. It says... Um, that Jesus, the, the wisdom revealed in the heavenly realms, I'm, this is where the, uh, the battle is happening, right? The spiritual battle. We know that it's not a flesh and blood, it's a spiritual battle. So, therefore, church like heaven on earth is not only transforming the people and the families in your church, it's changing the atmosphere over your cities, over your counties, over your communities. This is the manifold wisdom that's going into the atmosphere so that the heavenly realms are informed of God's plan for the one new humanity, for diverse unity. And then finally, it's, it's just awesome how Paul ends the book of Ephesians telling us in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So through this whole, we're seeing how this is all, um, just the way he's laid out the whole book of Ephesians is just beautiful. And ending it with, this is a spiritual battle. This is where it's happening, and this is where we need to be prepared. This is why we have to anchor it in theology, in the Bible, because we're fighting a spiritual battle. It's not a cultural battle. It's not a preference battle. It's a spiritual battle. So I know that was a lot, and I probably went through it kind of fast, <laughs> as I tend to do. Um, but next I'd like to talk about some of the practical steps that we've taken in our community, and then also some other resourcing. And I just welcome you to make this interactive and um, stop me, raise your hand, shout out if I don't see you, and let me know your thoughts or ask questions or um, dialogue as a group so that we all learn from each other. So the first step that, um, I, which is what I just covered, for our community at People's Church, the most important thing was to teach the word, to teach the theology, to not just have the vision that we really feel God gave us and that came from the Lord for the body, but to um, teach the word of what, what the word says about diverse unity, why we're doing it. So we had sermon series. We um, in the classrooms, we would teach it. Anytime that we were 
um, visioning for new small groups or whatever we're doing within the body, it all is rooted in the biblical truths that we just walked through together. Um, Another step that we did, which was the first thing I talked about, Pastor Ezra, is diversifying leadership. Uh, it's, it's really important not to just um, have start, okay, I have one person that's different than the majority, and so now we're diverse, right? We're, my husband said the goal is not to look non-racist. The goal is to be diversely united, which I really like that that made me chuckle too. So, um, yes, you start with one person, but you don't stop there. And starting with one person might feel really hard like it did for us, but God, you start praying it in, and God brings it. So you um, go to your, Chris always says, go to your local Walmart. That is where you will see who's in your community. So maybe we have people say, our community's all white. And, that's, and it's like, all right, if it's all white, at least you probably have rich and poor. You probably have old and young, and you have... Um, other diversity, but I would guess to say that every community has some diversity, whatever that is in your area. So find out what that is and intentionally diversify leadership. Um, we also, it was really important to diversify leadership and give authority and decision-making power to that person. So not just a token like they're on our team and so that we can look the right way, but giving them a voice. So Pastor Ezra, he was a pastor in his own right for many years. He came on our team and he's a pastor with us and he is making decisions with us. Also, um, board members, when you start having some diversity, it's important to get that diversity on your board. And so we would take um, men and eventually women we had women way back in the day, and then there was a season there weren't women, and then we brought women on again in our leadership. But um, we would take them to lunch and say, hey, we need you, you to let your name stand on the board. Oh, I don't know if I'm cut out for board meetings. And we're like, it doesn't matter. You need to be there. We need your voice. We need your perspective. We need your vision and your passion. Um, and so that's how we'd start, one at a time. You start one at a time and give them leadership that has... Um, some authority and some decision making. For a larger church, you can start with hiring. So we were able to hire a pastor. In smaller churches, maybe you can't hire. Maybe, or maybe you're a large church and you still don't have the funds to hire. But you can have diversity through volunteers. So stage presence is really important. If you have diversity in your church, Put it on your stage. Have it in your uh, worship team. If they don't sing well enough, my son's a worship pastor, just turn their mic off. And, but you still have them up there worshiping because we can worship even if our voice isn't great, right? Um, but having them lead prayer time or announcements or whatever it is. Uh, we ha we're next to the University of Cincinnati. It's 45,000 students, and we have students from all over the world. It's beautiful. The majority of our diversity does not come from students, but we do get some students that come from around the world. And they come because they say, if we have a Malaysian young woman come in the door, she maybe doesn't see someone from Malaysia, but she's, we've been told by students, when I see people that are different worshiping together in a church coming together, I feel like I fit in also, even if it's not my exact culture that's there. Just different cultures allow others to feel accepted and apart. So, um, yeah, volunteers, having volunteers involved 
however that looks for you. Also in printed material, this is really important, and this is something I, I wasn't sure I agreed with at first, but Chris really helped me with this, that um, printed material needs to show diversity. If that's where your heart is and what you want for your the body and where you're worshiping and leading, you need to show it in your print. So on your website, on your bulletin, or wherever you have photos of people, your kids' ministry, show a diverse group of kids. If this is not your reality, I was like, isn't that kind of false advertising? And Chris said, no, it's visioning. It's visioning where we want to go. So if someone comes in and they're like, I came because I saw diversity on your website, but you're all white. Hey, that's where we want to go. Help us get there. And you know what? There's something really beautiful, the authenticity of this is what we want to be. We want diverse unity, and we need you to get there. So come join us. Be a part and invite people. Um, any thoughts or questions while I take a breath and I can talk fast and not let things soak for a second? Describe people's church today. Oh, yeah. I'm getting there. I'm kidding there. It's not in my notes yet. <laughs> yes, sir. I appreciate that you're saying that, like about um, you know, especially like in John, where you read how how you know in Christ we're we're one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter the the color or the culture right. or whatever, because like in the in the world, it just seems like you know the media and everything is just like pushing division, mm -hmm. pushing you know. Racism and stuff that's not, I think in my mind, it's not even really true. Mm -hmm, uh, right. People, yeah. A lot of people are buying into it and um, it, it's causing division, you know? When, mm. um, yeah. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're people and when you just relate to someone or, or someone needs help, mm -hmm. you know, you're not seeing the color. It's just we're, mm. we're humans and we're, mm. you know, we're, you know, we can, uh, even though we have different cultures or different, yeah. you know, Yes. We have a lot of things that are the same too. Even though we do bring our differences and embrace the difference, there are also a lot of things we feel the same and embrace that too. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, just another step that we encourage in the body, we, we started really coaching and um, teaching and encouraging everyone in the body finding diverse, authentic, honest relationships. Find someone that you can connect with that's different than you. Get to know them. Get to know their likes and their dislikes and their upbringing and their history and, and things that frustrate them and things that give them joy. Get into each other's lives, which this is probably the hardest part. We started changing um, ethnically and visually. We looked a lot different before we started going deep with relationships. You know, you don't want to just be a church that you walk in on Sunday and you all look different and we're here and so we're a diversely unified body. I would argue that you're probably not that unified, you're just diverse. And so taking that next step was one of the hardest steps of encouraging authentic relationships. The way we did uh, start working on that was offering small groups. So this is gonna sound really funny, but our team, some pastors and leaders in our church, organized and wrote curriculum and developed a 20-week curriculum of small group experience. 
at the time. I don't know what we were thinking. I, didn't, I don't th remember thinking that was weird at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, we usually do like an eight-week small group curriculum or something like that, six to eight weeks. We did 20 weeks. At that time, we had 280 people sign up to do the small group experience. We took, we were at this point, this was in 2007, is that right? And um, so by this point we had diversity and we intentionally placed people in groups. So we did it in a fun way because it's like, oh, how do you say, well, you have brown skin so you're here and you have creamy skin so you're here and you're a woman, and, but that's what we did. And we made it fun with Skittles. So we assigned um, regions around the world to different Skittle colors. And so when you signed up, you, you took a sticker of that color, the little circle, and you put it next to your name. And if you looked at a group and you saw all green, because green was uh, white people, and you are green, you don't go in that group. You go into a group that needs the green color. You know. So we made it kind of fun and different, but we mixed men and women, old and young, black, white, brown, everything in between. We did a 20-week experience. Um, out of that 280, 230 people finished that experience after 20 weeks. People were hungry because what happened in these groups, the pastors and leaders would do like a 10 to 15 minute video teaching talking about the history of our city, uh, the history of our nation, personal story, and then you would have your small group discuss it, there were curriculum questions, and you were learning each other's lives. There was a lot of listening happening. You went into a group, we had rules about listening and not you know, cutting people off or all the rules that you have to make for small groups, but there was so much learning that happened that people were hungry for this. They wanted to know what this was all about. This um, amazing curriculum turned uh, into a <coughs> A eight-week curriculum, you'll be glad to know, that uh, O'Neill Kwabi, who was a part of our lay team at that time, and Mark DeMaz, they wrote a, an eight-week curriculum out of that vision experience, and they called it Multi-Ethnic Conversations, and that's a great resource to start community building in your church around diversity. Another book uh, Mark DeMaz wrote is Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, and um, coming soon is going to be a book called Remarkable by C.N. Beard, and that's going to be more detail of our story, the whole book of Ephesians, downloading all of that and all the practice. So then in 2010, we had a second small group experience called Crossonomics, because we realized there is a lot of um, division in race, and we believe that the deepest fracture in America is the black and white fracture. And so that we went right at it. We didn't like gloss it over and say, oh, it's about all the different people not getting along. It is somewhat that, but the deepest fracture in our setting is black and white. So we went there and we talked about that. Um, but, but then we also realized there's this division in society between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And so we um, also wrote a curriculum. This one was shorter. It was eight weeks. And it's called Crossonomics. And it talked about the differences in socioeconomics in our nation, in our cities, in our counties. Uh, we're hoping to publish that later this year. In 2010, we also had an amazing small group experience that was unexpected. Like, 
out of left, as much as Ezra was out of left field, this was just a surprise. But there was a mother in the church by this time who'd been walking with us several, several years. Her name was Cece. And uh, we would meet with Cece regularly to learn from her. She was an African-American woman in her 60s, had a lot of wisdom, came from an all-black church experience because she would walk by or drive by our church and God said, you're supposed to go there. And she's like, I'm not, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. I don't know what church that is. Then she did research and she sees the church and she's like, I'm not going there. I go to Southern Baptist and it's good. And um, so many times God told her and she finally obeyed. And she came in, brave, brave woman, came into a mostly white church at that time. She said she felt so uncomfortable to hear her stories. It's just amazing to find the treasure of someone that'll be that transparent and honest. She's awesome. So in 2010, she's like, you know what we need to do? Because as I said earlier, assimilation is not a word that we use in our context. We, we use integration, so we're coming together. Uh, she said, what we need to do is sit down with each group in the body from around the world separately. So like have all the African Americans sit down with us and have a listening session. Have all the Latinos sit down with us and have a listening session. And we were like, wait a minute, what you're like, we're gonna be all separate then. And she said, we need to hear from each group the things that they long for from their culture that aren't here yet. What are the gifts? We talked earlier about the gifts that God puts into each person, but into each culture, the gifts that benefit the whole body. What, what could we do to do that? And she said, the only way people are going to really, really feel comfortable is if they're in their original group. So for six weeks, we had listening sessions. There were about four or five leaders, pastors, that we would sit and listen. We had a moderator. We sat in a great big circle in our um, backstage room, and we would just listen to their stories. We had questions that the moderator would ask. What, what do you miss from your culture of origin in a church service? What are the worship styles you miss? What are the just the... Um, traditions that you miss and they just opened up and came alive and we learned so many great things and started incorporating little pieces from each culture into what we could into the weekend services or into our um, seasonal calendar into our traditions of our church and so we started um, the East Africans, they, we have a, a very large population of Habesha, which is Ethiopian Eritrean. They love having a Christmas Day service. Okay, Christmas Day, going to church. I know if you're Catholic, a lot of people go to Mass. I, didn't grow up, I grew up Methodist, so um, we just were in pajamas all day on Christmas and had cinnamon rolls. And, pre and so this, at this point, my kids were like preteen or teen years, and we're going to get ready in the morning on Christmas morning and go to church. It was just really out there. I tell you, the first year it was a little bit stretching, but then they have a big a meal afterwards and it's a huge celebration. We started doing that year after year and we started getting as many Americans coming to that service as we did the internationals that loved doing that service. And so the way we do it now is we do it every other year so that we try to like accommodate different cultures. So one year we'll have a Christmas Day service, the next year we won't have a Christmas Day service and we alternate. Um, New Year's Eve was another thing. The West Africans love to pray in the New Year and so that tradition started. We learned that there's a Spanish festival in our city. I was born in Cincinnati. I never knew there was a Spanish festival. Every year, every fall. And so we'd go 
to the Spanish festival as a big group and, and learn the culture. And, and it, it's just something so connecting with a person when you start participating in their tradition and in their, in their culture. Uh, we also started having Taste of Nations, which is uh, we everybody on a Sunday after church, we try to do it outside on Labor Day weekend if the weather permits, and we have the different regions of the world, and you bring food that just makes your heart sing, either something you grew up with, something your mama made, or something you just love from the culture you live in now, and you put it in all the different areas, and I tell you, we've had really strange things in my thinking, like, you know, um, chicken feet and different things that some of my my young African sons that are now in the church and they bring with something and they're like oh try this mama beard and I'm like oh I don't know I can't do that but um but we also have a young man well not young he's my age so yeah he's young um <laughs> that's my son who laughed the loudest uh, he's in he lives in northern Kentucky and he said can I he said, can I, no, this man I'm talking about, Joe, he said, can I bring peanut butter and jelly to Taste of the Nations? He goes, because my kids won't eat anything else. I was like, bring PBJ. And so it's kind of a tradition now. He brings a platter of PBJ every Taste of Nations because that's what his culture is. That's what he brings. So it's great. We bring it all together. Um, so yes, today, I, Chris said to talk about our um, demographics today. God has been so gracious and he has done the good work. He's um, honored things even when we've blown it and made mistakes. He's still doing his work. And so today we're a half brown, half lighter hue body of believers. It's 25% African American, 25% international, and all the glory goes to God. It, I feel like I am at the throne that's going to be the future party. When we have worship, I feel like it's happening now. And it, it's just... It's very moving and exciting, and we want it for the world because we know that's how they will believe. That is what John 17 tells us. The world will believe when they see the unified body of Christ. So that is our, our continued visioning. We work on it every day. As I said, relationships are the hardest part, going deeper than just hanging out on Sunday, which is true in every church setting. But then if you're going to the next level of, I need to go across the culture to get to know you. There's even another barrier. And so you have to be so intentional. You have to be so purposeful. Um, just a couple other resources that I was going to put up. In the Influence Magazine, which you can find online, influencemagazine.com, Chris has a couple articles. One's called Church Like Heaven on Earth. That's from uh, 2016. And then the other one's called Ephesian Model, A Diversely United Church. And that's from 2018. So those are, um, oh, I forgot to say, this is just a funny thing. Um, when we did the listening sessions and we were learning about all these differences that, you know, people like this style of worship and, oh, worship is just a whole other thing, even if you're all the exact same color of skin. <laughs> but um, just all the differences of expression of when you're in a Sunday morning. We started a saying, uh, the 70-30 rule. So the 70-30 rule at People's Church is you can expect when you come in, Whoever you are, whatever culture you bring with you, you can expect 70% of the time you'll probably be comfortable with what's happening in the sermon, in the worship, in the prayer style. 70% of the time, let's say that you'll be comfortable, but 30% of the time, expect to be uncomfortable. We want to learn to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. 
because when I'm uncomfortable 30% of the time because someone's just standing there worshiping really quietly and that's not my style and that's maybe makes me uncomfortable because I'm not sure what they're doing that means that means they're enjoying their 70% of being comfortable because they're able to express how they do worship and what they're experiencing. So I tell you, the grouchiest people with change, you know, with change there's always grouchiness, including myself. Um, the grouchiest people, they like that. And they're like, oh, okay, you just had to tell me that I'm going to be uncomfortable. Once you tell people they're going to be uncomfortable 30% of the time, they're like, all right, I can do that. Because 70 sounds like a lot. You know, they're like, oh, I'm really winning because I'm getting 70% of what I enjoy. So that's just um, coming up with phrases like that along the way is really helpful. It's helpful in the teaching. It's just helpful in the discipling and the mentoring. So, so that's all I have. Um, we can have good discussion and conversation and questions and response as my son put it I like that he said he didn't have all the answers but he has a response if I don't have a response I'd also like to invite my husband Chris he's going to help me out and um, if you have questions for him too that would be great if there's someone right here and then we'll come here yeah yes we do have we have um, we call them first generation. So we do have two languages services. We, our goal is that everyone integrates into the sanctuary, the main sanctuary that holds the most amount of people, and that is an English service because our community, the primary language, is English. We have an Amharic service that meets during our first. We have two English services during first service, the Amharic speaking service. Um, convenes on the fourth floor. It's about 150 people, 100 to 150. Oh, that includes kids, so probably 100 adults are up there. Um, they have a, a language service, and then for second service, the goal is they come join us. When, when they aren't speaking any English, a lot of them don't come down to the English service yet, but that happens eventually. But what happens from day one is our children from babies through teenagers are all together. So while they're in Amharic service, because their kids are all in school and learning English or fluent already, so the kids are already all integrated. So, and that was the vision and goal. That's a whole nother story that'll be in Chris's book. But Pastor Petros is Ethiopian. He's on our team. He and Chris met back in the 90s, and he had a small group of Ethiopian Eritrean believers that he was discipling, and his dream was to have them plugged into an American church because he knew that if they started an Ethiopian Eritrean church, that the next generation would not be in church. And so he knew they would be English speakers because they live here in America. And so he brought them and first uh, just used our baptismal, our baptismal pool. Wow, we need to, that's like a sacred space, isn't it? It is anyway, right? But um, so he baptized, he asked Chris to baptize the believers because he did not want to be seen as their pastor. He wanted them to be a part of the church. That has now grown to like 150 people. We also have a Spanish service that meets during second service. So the goal is that they come to first service English speaking and then have a language service because there are the first generations that don't know English yet. And we've looked into like the special devices that translate and all, you know, and all of that. Eventually we might get there if we are big enough and need that. But for right now, those are our two main languages that are in our congregation that don't speak English. So that's what we do. She had a question here. You said some of your sons, they say mama. Yeah, mama beard. So I just wondered, 
because of people's culture, mm -hmm. that's why they called you mama. Yeah, right. So how many other things and how does it help? How is it for you to get used to that? Oh, that's so good. You teed me up. So I just wrote this uh, short article for the women's ministry online. Um, I don't even know how you find it. It's AG <laughs> Women's Ministry. It's online somewhere. You, you'll you could find it. But anyway, I talk about that in one of the paragraphs because um, when African Americans started attending, they started calling me First Lady, and I'm like. Yeah. Who? Oh, I don't know if I want to be a first lady. That sounds like a lot of pressure. Um, pastor's wife, of course, is what the article I wrote was about being called a pastor's wife and how um, my first line says that my, hus my spouse is a pastor's husband. Said no one ever, but it's true. And so the first role I had to get used to was being called a pastor's wife. I am also a pastor. Um, and they call me uh, Lady B is one that some people call me mother. You know, in Africa, when we started traveling to African cultures, they would all call me mother in Tanzania or in Kenya where we were. And I'm like, why are they? But that's just an, a role that honors. And so they call you mother. So yeah, I in the article I just said, you know what? They're all different roles, and my um, goal is not to take on the burden that other people's expectations would place on me because of the title, but I embrace, if it helps them feel included, I embrace them calling me anything they want, including just Jan, which is my favorite title ever, <laughs> or Lady B. That's one our worship pastor started calling me, and I was like, I like that one, Lady B. That sounds pretty fun. So, yeah, good question. There were, yeah. I just wanted to say I have so appreciated your talk and philosophy because all too often, churches pride themselves in being multicultural when mm -hmm. they're actually multi-ethnic. Mm -hmm. They don't really mm -hmm. emphasize or learn from one another as far as the cultures. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a one-size-fits-all, but we're right. not, we have multi-ethnicity mm -hmm. in the church. That's right. That's so true. Mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah. Right. I didn't talk about young and old? What do you want to talk about about young well, and old? It's part of yes. Okay. So it's a 117-year-old church, or 113-year-old church. It's an old church, older than the Assemblies of God. It was a church, and then it joined the Assemblies of God later. So it's the oldest church in the Assemblies of God. So when we came in, it naturally has older people. What is beautiful is that the pastors have always made room for those coming after, like the beautiful story I told Clyde and, of Clyde, Pastor Miller and Anita. Um, they, they never got stuck where they were. They always were embracing the next generation. And so we are trying to continue that. We want to pull in that next generation because if you don't, you die, right? And so um, giving voice and honoring the older generation while also embracing and letting the gifts of the younger generation be on display, even if they're making mistakes, that's how they learn. Always keeping um, even your, your worship, Alec talked about that in his um, sharing next down the hall, uh, that bringing in an older worship song. So our worship pastor, Reggie, is very intentional of including things in the service, worship service that would help the older generation feel comfortable, whether it's a hymn or just an old worship song. That's always one of his three or four that he does also. So those are some of the ways that we've tried to be embracing of all generations. Uh, okay. uh, just 
Yeah. Um, Jen's son. Um, teaching people in the same way we teach, like, why different cultures are valuable, teaching why the different generations are valuable. Because mm-hmm. I think we sometimes, my generation thinks we have so much to say and the world is changing so fast. <laughs> everybody needs to get out of the way and let us do our thing, which is not true. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful in our church um, to teach our people to teach young people why they should value older people. Mm-hmm. These people have so much experience and wisdom and life, and uh, we need to value that. And teaching the older generation why a 20-year-old kid has something to offer that they're not aware of. It's not because they have more life experience, but it's because they grew up in a different culture. Right. Because growing up in 2010 is different mm-hmm. than growing up in 1960. Exactly, yep. Uh, and, and if we want to reach everybody in our city and our nation and our world we got to reach all that's the right the that's right it's really good yeah it's, you know, i just wanted to make sure i had the name of the magazine resource was it influence influencemagazine.com is the website it's actually the whole thing yes jay Yes. Yes. Yes, we were. We were looking at our our demographics of our area. So our area is half brown, half beige, and nations also. And yet we were coming in from suburbs that were the white population coming into that neighborhood. So it was a real dichotomy if you looked at it now. Um, but yes, so that was our our goal was. I believe it it was those exact numbers where we are today. But Cincinnati proper so we, we put a goal on the board as a deacon and pastoral team in two thousand six and by then we were sharing the leadership power of black, white, brown. Not a, not as richly as we do now, but we were mm-hmm. already starting to be there. And we just put forty, forty, twenty. Forty mm-hmm. percent white, forty percent African American, forty percent nations. We asked God for 15 nations, and he, he just helped us blow through that. Mm-hmm. By seven years later, it was crazy. And that's why the name changed to People's Church, because it was right. necessary. And then today, like last week, Pastor Petros told me, he's our senior associate pastor, he said, we just added to Brazil. Mm-hmm. So he said, 36. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still 150. I don't know how many of those <laughs> Until, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering how you, was, how you started that and what you did with the Yeah. Like, just that you're shooting for. Yeah. yeah. It's been amazing. Yeah. Alec? Can you talk about maybe why the church should be, dare say, even more diverse than the neighborhood that it's in? Hmm. More diverse than the neighborhood it's in? Yeah. Well, I would say because of John 17 saying it's it's the Great Commission it's how the world will believe so if we are united across difference especially the divides that are so great in our nation that people hear on the news every day that you were mentioning um, it's going to be the witness it's the tool God will use to witness to the ends of the earth so even if your exact neighborhood isn't as diverse as what you want your church to be there is still a goal of diversity to be the model of what God wants for his bride. Is there more you want to add to that? Oh, I'll make you 
Yeah, I'd love for you to. Well, I think uh, <laughs> something we've talked about is the fact that cities are often segregated mm -hmm. by broken humanity. Yeah. And so if like there's a neighborhood that's primarily black and a neighborhood next door that's primarily white, even though if I'm in the white neighborhood planting a church and I say, oh, I represent everybody around me, we sh as the church should be prophetically reaching mm -hmm. across those barriers right. that sinful people have built. That's right. And leading our society in reconciliation. Right, that's good. He just, he just taught a session called the um, pastoral prophet, the worship leader. And Alec is a worship leader, and I see that. There's his prophecy part. <laughs> there, it's right there. Yeah, Al? Well, you know what he just did also? He broke the curse. Because mm. you raise a generation that gets it. Mm. Yes, amen. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's good. Amen. You said originally you were called into missions. Do you feel like you're fulfilling that? Well, this is the thing. You know, God is so creative. And so when I was 15 and I was newly walking with Jesus, I go to a camp and I hear what I think is must be God's voice. It wasn't audible, but we're in a prayer time. They told us to go off and pray about your future. You know, we're all these teenagers. And I heard God say, take the light of Jesus to the nations. So in my young heart, I only thought of missions. And I love, I still love overseas missions. I love, I'm passionate. It's one of my greatest passions. Unreached people groups, one of my greatest passions. So as this whole vision, Pastor Miller asks us to stay, and then God births a new vision, and it becomes a church of 35 nations. I, just, I can't tell you how many times I've cried over how God fulfilled a promise or a calling on my life, but how it looks so entirely different than what I could ever imagine. I, I didn't grow up in ministry. Chris's fourth generation AG pastor. So I, I, I was a, a pastor's wife. I don't, ooh, I don't know what that is. I don't play the piano and sing and all that stuff that, that you're supposed to do. And that's part of the article I wrote was just being this pastor's wife. What is that pressure and that identity? And I don't know what that is. But when God showed me, look what I did. Look, at, I brought the nations to you. I mean, I could just weep about how good he is. It's just really awesome. Anything else? Anything, Chris? Well, we just have to say, we're from New Mexico, so my husband's Hispanic, and I'm Native American. Awesome. Um, so we're, like, you know, diverse in our church. Yeah. We were, when we moved up here five years ago, we were scared, mm. because we knew Ohio was a white or black state, you know, mm. we just didn't know what to expect, but wow. we have such great, um, it's just great here. I mean, you go down mm. there, it's like... The Hispanic cultures is like, they're mean. <laughs> they are. They, they're like ignoring you, just kind of snuff you off. Mm. And that's what we grew up in and stuff, you know. And so we didn't really know what to expect coming here. Sure. We don't really see a lot of brown people hmm. around here and stuff. So I, I just think Ohio is just a, a great, awesome state. And our church really brought us in. We go to RLC in Wadsworth. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so they just really brought us in and that's fantastic. That's what it's about. That's right. so good. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Anything, Chris, you want to share? I, I think I would just say for those of you in, in more rural counties, think, and you already probably do, but have a vision for the whole county. 
and in the whole county uh, understand the demographics uh, economically, ethnically, lingually. Are there immigrants? You know, are, are there heroin addicts that have been reached and their families? Uh, mm -hmm. As well as the person who owns the, you know, the auto parts store. You want to reach all the, the people, right? Make disciples of all ethnic, mm -hmm. all eth ethnic groups, but also all peoples. Mm -hmm. And I, often we don't think about that. We think about reaching people that we have an affinity with. The Jews in Jerusalem who were part of the church, they did that too. And it's like the Lord used persecution to scatter the church mm -hmm. before they really began to obey the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. I would just rather obey than be persecuted. I think that's just... <laughs> there you go. That's good. Yes, Sal? So I guess my question would be in closing. Do you guys have like certain values or like rules that you abide by to make sure you keep diversified unity? Like we don't go there mm -hmm. on this or we... We're intentional about that. You know? Mm. Like I know like in our church, like we have set rules, especially around the elections. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Just to yes. make sure we're unified. Yes. Yeah, and... Um, Absolutely. Teaching it from the pulpit. So last fall, um, Chris gave me the grace of teaching a sermon on nationalism. And so Labor Day weekend, we talked about the myth of nationalism being Christianity. And we were talking about cultural myths in general, and so that's one we address. So yes, we uh, keep politics out of the pulpit, and um, nationalism doesn't have a place in the church. Uh, we also, in our staff meetings, everything we talk about in staff meeting, it, it has all the voices that are there, male, female, brown, black, white, young, old, and we talk about every time we're making a decision, we're reflecting about that. Like, how is this decision affecting the whole body? How are we keeping our mission in front of us for these decisions? Which is true of whatever mission you have, that you're always trying to navigate that. but. Yeah, it, it has to be so intentional all the time. Hardcore rules. Um, yes, oh, that's a great one. Yes, do not come, don't come to a pastor if you have a problem with your brother or sister. You go first to your brother or sister and talk to them about it. And then if you need help, you grab one more or two more and, and help solve your problems. Has it ever come to the point where it hasn't been Step two almost works every time. Step yeah. one works 90% of the time. Step mm -hmm. two works the other 9%. But we've had to solve some matters at a leadership level before. Mm -hmm. Not the whole church, except when we've had to... One time, yeah. But yeah, other than that... Do you find that the millennials are the same mindset across the cultures? I think, Alec, you could answer that, but I would say no. I think, I think depending... Yeah, the culture you grow up in is more your culture than millennial cult culture over. I think millennials are across the board, across races, probably more similar than previous generations. But I'm still so, like my life growing up in a white family is so different than some of my best friends just because they grew up in a different culture. Yeah. So I think there's still a lot of diversity in our nation. Mm -hmm. There might be less intentional or unconscious racism 
but the lunch room is still brown, black, and white tables mm -hmm. for kids today. And, that, and we use that example to show kids, you, you know, you think, you're, you think your life is inclusive, but tell me about your lunchroom in school. And they mm -hmm. kind of go, oh. So their definition of being, we don't have a problem with this, is that they don't say the wrong things as much. <laughs> as much. As much. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Anything else? Yep. What goals do you have now? Because like, it seems like, to, like, to me, it's like, oh, they've arrived. They're doing great. Uh, well, a big goal we have is multiplying. So we're starting to plant churches. We started a network last year, People's Church Network. People's, just to clarify, is not an apostrophe. It's not possessive. It's people's, like Chris mentioned, ethne, um, peoples of the earth. So we're multiplying. We, our goal is to be in racially fractured cities around our nation and around the globe. So we're, we're targeting, we're raising up, we have a residency program that we're raising up young leaders that want to go off and plant and do church like heaven in cities that are really desperate for it. So, and to go deeper, the other relational deeper is always work that needs to be done in our local at Uptown, which is where we are. Yeah, when your, your first pastor that you brought on uh, from the- Ezra, mm-hmm. Is People's Church, it's Assembly? Okay. It's Assemblies of God, so yes. How does that part work? He, well, he was, he didn't switch his, um, I don't know, he was with AME Zion, I don't know if he's, or I guess ordained with them still. Yeah, so he just came and served with us. Um, we have several pastors uh, that aren't AG credentialed yet, maybe, never will be, hopefully they will be. I just wondered, um, like, when you're planting these other churches? Oh, all people's churches will be Assemblies of God, and which means their pastor will be Assemblies of God. We've made that decision. We just finished our bylaws okay. this past year. Boy, that was a grueling process. So, um, yes, because that gives covering. We believe in the covering and the community and the missional force of the Assemblies of God is amazing. So, yeah, all in. All right, sorry we will let you go. Thank you for coming. Thanks for your input and your interaction.